Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called The God Who Is. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 11, 2015. A righteous man on an ash heap, a rich man in a camel, a forsaken poet, a bone-piercing priest. Is it me or is this week's lectionary a hodgepodge? What does Job's anguish have to do with the eye of a needle? Why place King David's famous lament, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, alongside the living and active word of Hebrews 4? What do these readings have in common? What I notice is this. Each of the four texts is embattled. Each confronts a belief we take for granted, a received wisdom we hold dear, and turns it on its head. Each wrestles with false gods, the gods of convention, the gods of convenience, the gods of common sense, and breaks through to another god instead, a stranger, less palatable god, the god who is. In the first reading, we find Job exactly where last week's lectionary left him, still on his ash heap, still miserable, still surrounded by his clueless friends. One of those friends, Eliphaz, has just finished giving Job a lecture, and now it's Job's turn to respond. He does so in thundering indignation, each word testifying to the theological war raging within him. Who is God? Where is God? What can human beings reasonably expect from a life of faith? Job's answers to these questions are shot through with ambivalence. God is nowhere. Quote, if I go forward, he is not there, or backward, I cannot perceive him. And yet God is oppressively everywhere. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. I am terrified at his presence. Job wants nothing more to confront God face to face. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come into his dwelling. And yet he's desperate to leave God's sight. If only I could vanish in darkness and thick darkness would cover my face. Job has full faith in his spiritual credentials. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips, and yet he knows his credentials will not protect him. But God stands alone, and who can dissuade him? What he desires, he does. Job is not a tame man seeking a tame God. He's a God-haunted man pursuing the passion of his life, only to crash again and again and again into mystery. His is religion at its wildest, a journey towards the presence that is absence, the safety that is terror, the knowing that is always in this life an unknowing. If we read Job's story looking for coherence, we won't find it. It's a story at war with itself. In his book, How to Read the Bible, scholar James L. Kugel describes the book of Job as a nuanced and unresolved dialogue between the Israelite wisdom tradition and the realities of faith in a messy world. The wisdom tradition holds that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. In wisdom's worldview, prosperity is a sign of divine blessing, and deprivation signifies the withdrawal of that blessing. To suffer, in other words, is to experience God's displeasure. It's this received wisdom Job must wrestle with when his life falls apart. It's the wisdom his friends attempt and fail to reconcile with lived reality. Interestingly, it's piety that keeps Job's friends from encountering God in this story. Strapped to the theology they know best, they find themselves sidelined when God finally shows up. And it's Job's blasphemy, his refusal to swallow any theology that doesn't jibe with the truth of his own life, that earns him an audience with God. Let's fast forward a few centuries. In this week's Gospel reading, a rich young man kneels at Jesus' feet. Good teacher, he says fervently, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a pastor's dream question, isn't it? So much hunger, so much readiness, a soul ripe for the plucking. 
How easy it would have been for Jesus to secure a new and potentially useful convert. How effortlessly he could have said the warm and welcoming thing. What? You've already followed the commandments for years? Excellent. And you're already calling me good? Then you must know who I am, because only God is good. Wow, I'm impressed. You're in. Or else Jesus could have worked by increments, coaching his new convert into the values of God's kingdom. How about you write a small check to charity this year? Nothing scary. Nothing that will break the bank. Just a token? But no. Jesus seems to have little interest in his followers' ease or comfort. Those are my obsessions, not God's. He takes another route altogether. May I ask the question baldly? What kind of God sends a pious and searching soul away? Jesus, looking at him, loved him, the text says. Jesus loved him, and so he said the truthful thing, the hard, unpalatable thing he knew would cause the young man's fervor to dissipate on the spot. Sell what you own, give to the poor, follow me. The text says the man was shocked and went away grieving. No kidding. I imagine he was shocked because he considered his wealth an asset, a symbol not only of his worldly accomplishments, but also of God's favor. How terrible to be told that his best credential, his trump card, was a liability and a burden. How grievous to realize that God's kingdom was not automatically for him, that he might not like it or agree with its priorities or find common cause with its inhabitants. How shocking to encounter a God who is so scandalously honest, a God who freely hands us reasons to walk away. Our psalm reading this week, A Pure Lament, also gives us reasons to pause in our pursuit of the divine. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. I am poured out like water. You lay me in the dust of death. At the center of this lament is the poet's struggle to reconcile conflicting notions of who God is. In David's particular case, the battle is between the famed God of family lore and the absent God who eludes him in real life. In you our ancestors trusted, he cries out in confusion. They trusted and you delivered them. So what about me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For those of us who grew up in the church, steeped in the spiritual stories of other believers, this is a cry we can relate to. Like David, we trace our faith histories back a long way. On you I was cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Of course, it's entirely appropriate to draw strength and inspiration from our spiritual histories. And yet somewhere along the way, we might find that the God who was, the God whose stories we know, the God we've learned to trust by way of tradition, ancestral history, or community lore, the God whose faithfulness we assume will look identical from year to year, generation to generation, doesn't jibe with the life we find ourselves in. In such moments, we discover that it's one thing to know God in abstraction, and another to know him personally. David's cry is a plea for relevance. I know the God of my ancestors, but who is God right here, right now, for me? Which brings us to Hebrews four twelve to 16 a passage that epitomizes the tensions running through this week's lectionary. The writer of Hebrews describes the word of God as active, sharp, and piercing, a two-edged sword that divides soul from spirit, joint from marrow. He is a naked-making word, a word who sees all, exposes all, and judges all. And yet this word is also a merciful and gracious high priest, the Son of God who knows our weaknesses and vulnerabilities, the one whose throne we can approach with honesty and full confidence. How can he be both, piercing and gracious, judging and sympathetic? How can the word that cuts be the word that heals? With God, Jesus tells the rich young man, the impossible is possible. Read together, these four lectionary texts defamiliarize God. 
They challenge us to encounter him freshly, apart from tradition, memory, theology, and abstraction. If we're willing to engage with the tensions in these readings, they can offer surprising clues about who God is and what he cherishes. He is a God who dismisses the pious to answer a loudmouth on an ash heap. He is a God who loves us enough to let us walk away. He is a God who will not allow us to rest on our histories. He is a God whose grace cuts deeper than a sword. May we dare to wrestle past the gods we have known, the gods who keep us safe but cannot save us. May we approach with boldness the untamed God who will. For books this week, we review Moral Agents, Eight 20th Century American Writers by Edward Mendelssohn. This is a book, writes Edward Mendelssohn, about writers, morality, and power. The eight writers he considers wielded unusual power and authority to shape the national narratives of America. Lionel Trilling, Dwight MacDonald, Alfred Kazin, William Maxwell, Saul Bellow, Norman Mailer, W. H. Auden, and Frank O'Hara. Such was their public vocation. In Mendelssohn's telling, they also struggled on a personal level with the power they experienced and with the many conflicts between their inward, intimate private lives and the lives they led in public, the choices they continually made between wearing a mask and exposing their face. Trilling was an international celebrity who in public was a pipe-smoking scholar who exuded sober decorum, whereas in his private journals he wrote about his nihilistic despair. Kazin struggled with the tension between the collective identity of his Jewish heritage and his individuality. Maxwell, the fiction editor of The New Yorker for 40 years, was a man of hopeless stoicism. Bella was a renegade scholar-gangster who blew through five marriages, but also had a well-worn New Testament at his bedside during his final illness. Christianity was central to Auden's life and work, but it's the least understood aspect about him. Earlier versions of these eight chapters were published as articles in the New York Review of Books from 2007 to 2012. And for those who are surprised, as I was, that Mendelssohn selected eight white males who are Jewish to write about, he appeals to his earlier book, The Things That Matter, What Seven Classic Novels Have to Say About the Stages of Life, the considered only women authors. For films, we review Bite Size. This 90-minute docudrama tackles our national epidemic of childhood obesity by following four middle schoolers who are trying to lose weight. Two of the children are from the, quote, fattest and poorest state of Mississippi, Davian, who's already diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, like every member of his family, and who dearly wants to play on the football team, and Kiana, who with her buddies joins the school program. Moy is from a middle-class Hispanic family in East L.A., and Emily is from an upper-class middle upper middle-class family in Florida that has cashed out their life savings and IRA to send her to a weight loss camp. It's easy to say that diet, exercise, and nutrition are the keys to weight loss and that obesity is preventable, but all four children face a lifelong struggle with the living nightmare of food addiction. For another cinematic take on this problem, see the movie Fed Up, 2014. I watched this film on Amazon Streaming. And finally, for poetry, we offer John Bunyan's the shepherd boy sings in the valley of humiliation. He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. I am content with what I have, little be it or much. And Lord, contentment still I crave, because thou savest such. Fullness to such a burden is that go on pilgrimage. Here little, and hereafter bliss, is best from age to age. 
Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 11th, 2015. I'm Debbie Thomas.